come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Listeners to episode 143 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode here for you, I have my Trek to the Twos number 17. As the two movies I'm going to delve into are the first one being from 1942 of Night Monster. This is kind of an interesting little film that features Bela Lugosi as well as Lionel Atwill. And then on top of that, I have Nope. So this is kind of a interesting little double feature here of, you know, blending a little bit of sci-fi with the former and a little bit more in the latter. And this also could be a little bit of a creature feature and also a double feature of movies that start with the letter N. Then also for you, I have mini reviews of The Burbs and Tetsuo the Iron Man as I finish up my summer series prep. And then I also got to do a 2022 rewatch of The Last Thing Mary Saw. Don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here outside of the fact that this is just going to be a bit shorter episode because I had to go home for a family reunion. So I kind of had a little bit smaller of a time. This coming week I should be able to get a little bit more stuff watched for you, but don't think there's anything else I need to tell you. So let me just say thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. I'm going to get you over to a very brief break before I get into those mini reviews and I hope you enjoy. And for my first mini-review on this week is going to be another one that I've not too long ago covered, and that is The Burbs. This is from 1989. This is directed by Joe Dante. It was written by Dana Olson. This stars Tom Hanks, Bruce Dern, and Carrie Fisher. This is a comedy, mystery, thriller film that many consider to be in horror as well. This is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being an overstressed suburbanite and his neighbors are convinced that the new family on the block is part of a murderous satanic cult. So this is one, as I was saying, that I most recently covered on episode 132. So, I mean, barely 10 episodes ago, actually just over 10 episodes ago. That one was my Trek to the Twos number six, where I featured Off Season and Chandu the Magician as the featured reviews. This was actually the first mini review that was on that episode over there. 
So since this is going to be on the Summer Challenge series, I'm going to be very brief in what I'm going to say here, as it is a fun movie. I don't necessarily call this a horror movie, but I think it's adjacent enough, and I would consider it, especially when you have Joe Dante behind the camera, as we get enough of those elements. We have a great cast. They fit the characters so well and bring them to life. I like the concept of this movie, for sure. The filmmaking elements are good with the cinematography. It makes it feel like the suburbs where this is supposed to be set. The effects were fine and the soundtrack works. After my first viewing, I thought this was a good movie and one that I was excited to come back to now that I had ticked it off my list. After the second watch, it does hold up and this one might end up fitting into my rotation as I think the cast is just perfect for what this movie needs and how well they play off each other and everything like that. Not going to give my rating as this is going to be discussed in the Summer Challenge series, but definitely recommend giving this one a watch. And for my second mini-review, I have Tetsuo the Iron Man, another one that I've recently watched and am just doing a secondary watch for the Summer Series. But this is written and directed by Shinya Tusakamoto. This is from 1989. This stars Tomoro Taguchi, Kai Fujiwara, and Nobu Kanonowaka. This is a horror sci-fi film that is from Japan. It is currently sitting on a 6.9 on IMDb, nice, and a 3.8 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being, a businessman accidentally kills the metal fetishist who gets his revenge by slowly turning the man into a grotesque hybrid of flesh and rusty metal. So this is one that I had recently did a mini review back on episode 132. This would have been my Trek to the Twos number six, which was Off Season and Chandu the Magician were the two featured reviews on there. But this is one that I will say is a wild movie. Not one that I can recommend to everyone. I do think this movie paved the way for more of this body horror that you'd get in Japan. So there is historical significance. Without this, I'm not sure you get that splatter gore movement from over there. There isn't the deepest story here, but I also don't think that it needs to be. What it makes up for is with visuals. There's a great atmosphere with the soundtrack and the design of the movie. The performance of the actors worked for what was needed. This is a hard movie to rate, and I would say that after that first viewing, this is a good one. And then after a second viewing, I definitely think that is solidified there. Since this is going to be on the summer series, I'm not going to give you what my rating is, but if you can handle these type of movies, I would definitely recommend giving this one a watch. This is going to be a little bit lighter of a week for my mini-reviews, but the last one I got to watch was a 2022 rewatch of The Last Thing Mary Saw. This was technically from 2021, but got its wide release this year. This was directed and written by Eduardo Vidaletti. This stars Stephanie Scott, Daniel Pierce, and Philip Hoffman. This is a drama horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.2 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being Winter, 1843. A young woman is under investigation following the mysterious death of her family's matriarch. Her recollection of events sheds new light on the ageless forces behind the tragedy. So this is one that if you want to hear a little bit longer of a review, I would definitely direct you to episode 118, which was Woman Appreciation number 5, as this was a featured review with Ghost Stories. As over there, I made this as a featured review, so I definitely went much deeper into things. But I still think this is a solid movie that I'm glad I got to see for this year. I think that it is an interesting time for this to take place. The idea of forbidden love is something that's still relevant today. 
setting in a time where we have a hyper-religious family is good. Thought that the acting was solid to bring the characters to life. Being that there is a supernatural or a normal way of looking at things of the events is good. The effects of cinematography are both well used. The soundtrack fit for what was needed. I thought this is a good one the first time that I saw it. Upon a revisit, I still think this is a solid effort, but my rating has come down slightly. So my rating for the last thing that Mary saw is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. Let me get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. I think you know who killed those doctors. You've got to tell us in order to prevent other deaths. I can't. I can't do that. Look. Blood! first feature review on this episode is going to be Night Monster. This is from 1942. It was directed by Ford Beebe. It was written by Clarence Upson Young. And then this stars, according to this, Bella Lugosi, Lionel Atwill, and Leif Erikson, while also featuring Irene Hervey, Ralph Morgan, Don Porter, Niels Esther, Faye Helm, Frank Riker, Doris Lloyd, Francis Perlot. Robert Homans, Janet Shaw, Eddie Waller, and Cyril DeLevante. This is a adventure drama horror mystery thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being, Kurt Ingston, a rich recluse, invites the doctors who left him hopelessly crippled to his desolate mansion in the swamps as one by one they meet horrible deaths. So this is a movie that I hadn't heard about until looking for horror from 1942. While I was looking into this, I saw that it starred Bella Lugosi and Lionel Atwell, a couple of actors from the era that I'm a fan of. It also seemed interesting that this is a universal film. It's one that you don't hear a lot about since it must be one of those one-offs. With all of that, I decided to make this a trek through the twos. So then, before I get into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes here, and I'll start with our director of BB. He has 76 credits. I've seen three. It appears that he did quite a bit of sci-fi, especially ones that take place in space. Outside of horror, I've seen Fantasia, which shocked me that he was a part of that. In genre, he has two, and I've seen both. This was his first, and he followed it with another one that I like with The Invisible Man's Revenge. Moving to our writer of Young, it looks like he mostly did westerns. He has 20 credits. This is the first that I've seen. He did two in genre, both from this year. The other one is on my list of The Strange Case of Dr. Rx. Now, before I get into the actors, let me do a, the first thing of trivia that I found to be quite interesting, and that is Lugosi and Atwill were hired for their marquee value rather than their performances. Lugosi was relegated to a supporting role as the butler. Atwill's character is one of the doctors. 
And I'm not going to go too much farther than that with the trivia, though, because it does go into spoiler territory, but I at least wanted to bring that up here. What I'm going to look at first is Morgan. Now, they have 93 acting credits. The first that I've seen is this. Five of what they did is in horror. The first was Condemned to Live from 1935. This followed, and then they did Weird Woman, The Monster Maker, and The Creeper. These last four are all in the 40s. Then Deporter, who has 45 credits. This is the first that I've seen here as well. This is the first in genre. He also did She-Wolf of London and the Norlist tapes from 1973. I have heard of She-Wolf. I have not heard of this other one, though. Next is Hervey. She has 54 credits, and this is the first that I've seen. This is the only one that she did in horror, though. As an update as well on Lugosi, I've seen 25 of his 132 credits, 19% of everything. In horror, 26 out of 60 for 43%. Then I'll also do this for At Will for an update. I've seen 9 of his 78 works, making that 11%. 9 of his 20 in horror, making that 45%. Now we start this with an interesting setup. This takes place at Inkston Towers. We have an Ingor Singh, portrayed by Esther, is let in as he was requested by the man who owns this place of Kurt. Now, Kurt is being portrayed by Morgan. This place seems to be a mental institution of sorts, or at least that's what somebody like claims that it is. Regardless, this is a huge mansion that Kurt owns. Agar enters and spies on the house cleaner of Sarah Judd, who is portrayed by Lloyd, who is cleaning up a spot of blood. She lies to Kurt's sister, who sees her, of Margaret, portrayed by Helm. Part of this is that Margaret's mental health is unsteady, but Sarah also gaslights her as well. Now, there is more commotion than this. There is Millie, portrayed by Shaw, tries to make a call to the police, but is stopped by the butler of Rolf, portrayed by Lugosi. She quits without notice after that. She then has a run-in with the driver of Lori, portrayed by Erickson. She chooses to walk, then kiss him. Lucky for her, she is helped into town by a guy with a horse and carriage. Then we go over to the train station where we have a group of doctors who know each other. There is Dr. King, who is portrayed by Atwell. There's Dr. Timmons, portrayed by Riker. And then Dr. Phipps, portrayed by Perlow. They're all shocked to learn that they were requested here at the same time by Kurt. Their connection is that they all tried to help him, but failed. The result left Kurt crippled. Now, Lori is there to drive them to Inkston Towers. There's also another doctor joining them. There's Margaret, who is requesting to have a Dr. Lynn Harper, portrayed by Hervey, to come to the towers as well. Now, this other doctor is a psychiatrist. Her car breaks down, and Dick Baldwin, who is portrayed by Porter, offers her a ride. He is also going to the towers. Now, he's a friend of Kurt, and he's a horror writer. Everyone here converges along with Millie, as she went to Constable Cap Beggs, who is portrayed by Homans. But no crime was committed, so there's not much he can do. Now, she's going back there for her things to leave. But that night, around this place, there are some odd things that happen. There's a fog, and the frogs in the nearby bog stop croaking. Dick and Dr. Harper hear a scream along with a terrifying figure. Millie is soon found dead. This brings Beggs to the house to solve the murder. Kurt is helping with the investigation, but his staff isn't so forthcoming. Sarah is keeping Margaret from talking to Lynn. The purpose for the other doctors is for Kurt to show that he's created a mechanical way to use one of his arms. He's also found a way to heal himself with the help of Agor. It seems like a way for them to see it as these doctors are killed one by one. Lynn seems to know who the killer is, making her a target as well. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap and introduction to the characters. What struck me about this movie is something that I've already said. This is a lesser talked about universal film. 
we have the likes of Lugosi and Atwell, but they play minor roles here. The cast is strong around them as well. I don't necessarily recognize the names, but I looked up some of them, and almost everyone that I took a glance at has at least 50 credits to their name. So they were working. I'll just delve into this as well here, is that we have Morgan, who is solid as his eccentric, Kurt. He is angry for what happened to him, but he covers it well. Porter is fine as our true lead. He doesn't do great about coming to the forefront, and I just think some of the people around him are just stronger actors. And it might also be how it's written. I like Hervey, who feels like our true hero here as Dr. Harper. Helm works as Margaret. I also liked Aster, Lloyd, Erickson, Homans, along with the cameos by Atwill, Riker, and Lugosi. The cast here is just solid across the board and helped to give these characters life. Now, where I'll take this next would be the concept of the movie. We are combining elements, which is interesting. This movie is taking them from different places. One of them I won't reveal as it's a spoiler, but what I will say is it takes from something I've watched from the year 1932 while I was, you know, doing this podcast for this year and everything like that, so just keep that in mind. But something I will say is that we have a murder mystery here. This seems common for the era. There could be a supernatural killer, in this case a monster, or it could be someone posing as it. They use the old dark house with secret passages. I'm a sucker for that. This also seems to be looking at alternative ways of healing. Having these three doctors is interesting. Dr. King thinks modern medicine is the only way. Dr. Phipps falls in the middle where Dr. Timmons knows they failed Kurt. And he's also, I believe, the one who's most interested in this alternative form of medicine. I like having this range of medical professionals. There's also Dr. Harper, who is a doctor of the mind. Kurt doesn't buy it, and Sarah tries to prevent her from talking to Margaret. This is still something of a taboo subject, so I'm not shocked to see, you know, back 80 years ago that this would be even more then. This seems to be an amalgamation of different things, and I can appreciate that. Now, the last part of the story I want to go into would be the murder mystery. I'll be honest, I guess this one. I don't want to fault the movie for this. What I will hold against it is that something I've seen in a few movies like this. Some of the things did work, as this was being cheeky with it. Having Dick here, he points out who most likely the suspect should be. Another character does as well. What I like is that we have red herrings. Realistically, it could be Rolf. I'll admit part of that due to his accent. Sorry, Lugosi. Laurie's a big hulking guy. Agor is a minority, and I mean, the police want to pin this murders on him and everything. Now, he does make a skeleton get manifested, and then there's blood afterwards, so I can understand that being a bit of a reason as well. So, I mean, regardless, so he is a suspect, even though he doesn't have a whole lot in this movie. There's some also people that we get to meet that could be a wild card if needed. I don't mind how this part played out regardless, even though that I did end up guessing correctly. And I mean, a lot of that is just watching some other murder mysteries from this era that it didn't put one over on me this time. Then finally, I will go over to the rest of the filmmaking aspects. I've already brought up the old Dark House stuff, and I thought the setting was good for that. It worked for what the movie needed. I'd say the rest of the cinematography was fine. It didn't stand out, but it was standard for the era. There were limited effects as well. We do get an interesting scene with Agor materializing a skeleton. There is a limited amount of blood. There's also could be a potential monster here near the end. I should also point out this is filmed in black and white, but being from 42, you shouldn't be shocked there. But this is all fine. The other thing was the soundtrack, which worked for what was needed. So then before I close out my thoughts, I just have a little bit of trivia here. At the end of the movie, the miniature of the Burning Mansion shown is identical to the miniature of the Burning Castle shown at the climax of the Ghost of Frankenstein from the same year. 
The scene of a foggy forest behind the opening credits is the same that was used in the opening of The Wolfman from the year prior. Hitchcock, as an Alfred, attended a screening of this because he wanted to cast Janet Shaw in his universal production of Shadow of a Doubt from 43. He thoroughly enjoyed this and was amazed at how quickly it was shot from July 5th to the 18th of 42 to be released in October 23 to be a double bill with one movie I've already covered of The Mummy's Tomb from the same year. The car driven by the chauffeur Erickson is a Duschenberg manufactured in Indianapolis, Indiana. Part of the original shock theater package of 52 Universal titles released to television in 57. Universal picture production number 1,256. That's all I have there. So in conclusion, this is another talk about Universal Entry. I think part of the issue here is that it is borrowing from other things that the company or other films from the era did. We get a bit of the old dark house, a murder mystery, and a potential monster. It makes this entertaining. There is a solid cast that brings all the characters to life. think the setting is good. What we get for the effects were fine. Soundtrack didn't necessarily stand out, but it also didn't need to. I would say that this is an above average movie and deserves to be seen more. I would call this one a hidden gem for sure. So my rating here for Night Monster is going to be a 7 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section as I don't think there's anything else that I really want to delve into here for this one. Let me get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Did you know that the very first assembly of photographs to create a motion picture was a two-second clip of a black man on a horse? And that man is my great-great-grandfather. Great. There's another great-grandfather. But that's why back at the Haywood Ranch, as the only black-owned horse trainers in Hollywood, we like to say since the moment pictures could move, we had skin in the game. It's a bad miracle. They got work for that. For my second featured review is going to be Nope. This is from here in 2022. This was written and directed by Jordan Peele. This stars Daniel Kalua, Kiki Palmer, and Brandon Perea, while also featuring Michael Wincott, Stephen Yuen, Ren Schmidt, Keith David, Devin Gray, Terry Notary, 
Barbie Ferreira, Donna Mills, Oz Perkins, Eddie Jameson, Jacob Kim, Sophia Cotto, Jennifer LaFleur, Andrew Patrick Ralston, and Lincoln Lambert. This is a horror mystery sci-fi thriller that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.5 on IMDb and a 4.0 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being, The residents of a lonely gulch in inland California bear witness to an uncanny and chilling discovery. So this is a film that I was excited for for this year. Since I avoid trailers, I just saw the poster and that was about it. It was enough for me to know that you know, it was a new Jordan Pill film and I was going to check it out you know, knowing that he's attached. I didn't get to catch this opening week, but I did avoid spoilers. Now, the buzz that I heard was mostly popular, so that helped. Now, Jamie also came with me to see this one in the theater. And then, before I get into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes. And I'll start with our director of Peel. He has three directing credits, all in genre. I've seen them now as they are Get Out, Us, and This. As a writer, he has seven. I've seen four, and all are in genre. Aside from the ones he directed, he has Candyman from 2021. Upcoming is another one in genre of Wendell and Wild, which I hadn't heard of. And then moving to our cast, I'll start with Kalua. He has 31 credits, and I've seen four of them. Out of genre, I've seen Kick-Ass 2 and Black Panther. In genre, he has three. The only one that I haven't seen is Horror Show, which looks like there was a short that he was in, and that was from 2017. His co-star of Palmer has 34 appearances. This is the first one that I've seen. In genre, she has two. Her first was Animal from 2014. And then the last one I'll look at is Yuen. He has 22 movies that he's been in. I know him as Glenn from The Walking Dead, of course. This is the first movie that I've seen. Now, he was also in Mayhem. That was a horror movie from 2017 as well. So, for this movie here, we have a sitcom that we kind of kick off with and this kind of plays as an interesting thing later into the movie and everything like that but we will learn that this was from the 1990s it had a gimmick of having a chimpanzee living with a family the problem is that it goes crazy killing most everyone on the show shifting to present day we follow oj haywood who's portrayed by kalua we learn that his family is hollywood royalty little known fact is that his ancestor was the first motion picture as in he was in it as a black man on a horse now he works on a ranch where they train horses his father is otis hayward senior who is played by keith david tragedy strikes a family with an unexplained event then there's a time jump oj brings a horse by the name of lucky to a commercial shoot what i like here is that he's quiet i wouldn't necessarily say that he's shy but he isn't a fan of talking in front of a large group of people he leaves that to his sister who is emerald portrayed by palmer now, she is late to this commercial, and she also is the life of the room when she's there. Things don't go as planned, and the commercial decides to go in a different direction. To sell almost on like a loan, this horse to a nearby tourist attraction. Now, he sells it, but well, at least the person he sells it to, who is Ricky Jupe Park, portrayed by UN, he thinks he's buying it, where OJ has in mind that he will be able to get this horse back once he kind of raises the money, so... I mean, it's almost like going to a pawn shop. What is interesting here is that Ricky, a.k.a. Jupe, was the little boy on the television show where the chimp went crazy. He tells all about this to Emerald. We also see that during this, OJ just wants to do business and get out of there. Back on their farm, we see the siblings have a strained relationship. She is helping when she can, but her heart isn't in it. OJ is making tough decisions to save the business. 
Things all change when another other horses get out of their stable and something happens. Now, I'm not going to spoil it, but what I will say is it's otherworldly. Our duo sees a chance to make money. What they will go through is going to be much more life-changing, though. So that's I'm going to leave my recaps. I don't want to give away what happens. What I will give you, though, is an idea there of our characters. And where I want to start would be something I've already brought up, and that is the writer and director of Peel. I'm not going to play my hand too early, but he is three for three for me with his movies. This is my least favorite, but that isn't a slight. I think that Get Out is a masterpiece, and Us isn't too far behind. What he did here is probably the most approachable, and might be the more mainstream appeal than Us. Now, where I'm going to go then would be the entity in this movie. I'm assuming most everyone reading this or listening to my reviews knows that this is Alien. That is the extent of what I will say outside of, I've heard some people say that the title is an acronym. I knew this coming up and supposedly it means not of planet Earth. Regardless, I like that despite leaning into science fiction, Peel is able to keep this grounded. We get a glimpse of this sitcom to start before meeting our main family. There is this encounter movie here that we're getting without going too far over your head with the science. I like this plays with conventions as well i've heard a podcast compare peel to m night Shyamalan, with this being the former's signs what is funny is that they share a subject matter there is a section of this that is similar scenes as well we also have another character of angel torres or i guess angel torres who's portrayed by perea points out that the pentagon confirmed in real life that there are extraterrestrials that gets incorporated here this goes in a different direction that I love, and the poster also makes sense once you watch this. Now, I think I want to start to delve a bit more under the surface. Where I want to start then would be that the sitcom that was brought up. There is a tragedy here, and Jamie questioned why it was in there. Something I heard in another podcast was that this event shaped Ricky. It fits with something that happens later in his life. I took it in a different direction. This explores the idea of predators. What I told Jamie is that the chimp had lost its mind like a predator would. Looking them in the eye is a form of a challenge to them, and that comes into play later. Now, there is also the director in this movie of Antler's Holst, portrayed by Wincott, as we see him editing footage of predators attacking it, their prey. He has insight into them, which I also liked. Now, since I'm on the animals, I'll go over to some social commentary. I think the movie is pointing out how they're treated past and present in the film industry. I know today is much better, I will say that, and in the past they would do some really shady things at times, and I mean, they have buckled down on that. Part of the explanation I have is that the chimp was at the end of what it could and take, and so it attacked. There's also a sad part for me that OJ is selling his horses that don't get the jobs in the film industry. I'd say the commentary on capitalism when you no longer are useful, you are sold off. It is quite sad to be honest. So in the last bit of commentary I want to go over to would also deal with a subject that I know is important to Peel. It is the historical significance of black people in the film industry. The moving image they show is real. That is the actual first one made and exhibited. The movie takes liberties with who that person is from what I'm guessing. I can work with that regardless. Peel is doing a great job at making movies with black leads and helping to solidify their place in modern cinema and I'm there for that. So I'm going to go over next to the acting then. Coming into this, I heard how good Palmer was. I will agree that she plays the character of Emerald in a quirky way, and it works to play off of Kahlua as well as her quieter brother. I personally think he's the better performance, though. He does so much without talking, and he just has a presence. Palmer was a bit too manic, but I won't take anything away from her. I thought that Perea was good in support. Wincott, Yuen, 
David and Perkins were all as well. The acting was good across the board as they all bring their characters to life. So then before I do some trivia, I want to bring up some filmmaking aspects. Where I want to start is at the cinematography. This is Peel's biggest budget today, and it looks great. The cinematography of the Gulch that this takes place in is amazing. What he does there is just beautiful. Shifting to the effects, I thought they were also good. There is some CGI, but I couldn't really see any issues with it. I'm also sure there are some practical ones mixed in, which were solid. The other part would be the soundtrack. This is something else that Peel does masterfully well. What sticks out is mostly of the use of the song Sunglasses at Night by Corey Hart. He slows it down and makes it eerie. The sound design is great there. We can also hear screams at different times that are unnerving. I think that this is what puts it into the horror genre for me. There are some people that are questioning its place in the genre, but my anxiety was up throughout most of this movie, and I think that is enough to put it in there. So then just doing a little bit of trivia here, I would say that Kiki Palmer's introductory scene in which Emerald delivers her energetic and fast-paced monologue about her family history during a safety meeting on set took 14 takes to shoot. Peel described each one as very wildly different. Peel cites King Kong and Jurassic Park monster films, the sci-fi Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Signs, and the fantasy film The Wizard of Oz as an influence what we got here. He considers these as examples of addiction to spectacle, a major theme in this. Despite being featured prominently in this, Fry's Electronics went out of business prior to this's release. Yuen's character has a large pair of metal scissors on his desk, which are the same ones that were used in his previous movie of Us, that is Peel's previous movie. Peel wrote the script at a time when they were a little bit worried about the future of cinema, so the first thing he wanted to do was create a spectacle and make sure that he had audiences wanting to come see this. Jesse Plemons was potentially going to be in this, but there were conflicts with another movie of Killers of the Flower Moon. Emerald and OJ respectively wear green and orange, as OJ you know, being short for orange juice potentially. Gordy is not the first motion caption simian portrayed by Notary. He previously portrayed Rocket in the reboot Planet of the Apes trilogy. Peel specifically chose the cowboy film Buck and the Preacher to feature prominently as it was the first film that he knew of to have black cowboys that were represented in it. The myth that cowboys were just white guys running around is just not true, but we know that because Hollywood and the romanticized view of a very brutalized era, that film shares a similar spirit. This takes place in Agua Dulce, California by the famous Vasquez Rocks. Principal photography began on June 7th of 2021. Antler's Holst is named after composer Gustav Holtz. The Scandinavian translation of Gustav is God's Staff or Staff of the Gods, and the staves of Scandinavian gods, those who use one, is depicted as being made or topped with an antler. The name of the TV show Hey Gordy is in reference to the song of the same name recorded by the 80s thrash metal supergroup S.O.D. This premiered at the Chinese Theater in Los Angeles on July 18, 2022, and was released widely by universal on july 22nd 2022 and there's also some more trivia on there but it does some spoilers so i don't want to do that so in conclusion even though this is my least favorite of peel's movies that isn't a slight in my opinion he has another one that i think is good we get a story here that i've seen before but he does something different with it the acting is good across the board i like what he does with the cinematography and the sound design as well as the musical selections cgi we get also works i also like the commentary even though this is the lightest of his movies with it 
Peel's just an expert writer and makes some interesting things. I'm looking forward to revisiting this one as well for my year-end roundup. So my rating here for Nope is going to be an 8 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section since this movie is still so new and I do want people to see this. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a very brief break before I close out the show. Journey with a Cinephile. I would like to welcome you back and then just to close everything out here, if you'd like to send me an email with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have read on the show, you can send me that email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If there's anything that you send me you don't want right on the show, just let me know in that email. If you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews of anything that I'm watching that is horror or non-horror alike. If you'd like to follow my Instagram page, that's David OSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. What I will be posting over there is on both of them the movie posters of anything that I am reviewing. And if you follow my personal one, every now and then you might see some personal pictures if I ever post any because I tend to forget while I'm out and about. And just to make it easier on you, I'll have all of those links in the show notes. And then the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get out to more listeners out there as well. And for my next episode, I believe the two featured reviews I'm going to have over there is from 1942, since it's going to be another Truck of the Twos, is going to be The Mad Monster. I know that one's streaming and everything like that. Not sure where offhand though. And then the other one is either going to be Bodies, 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 or the one that I brought up last week. I believe it's called All the Moons. Kind of all just depends on how my week shapes out. And I know Jamie wants to see the first one that I said of Bodies, 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 but we're just not sure how our schedules will align for that as the Gateway Film Center is currently only open on Thursday through Sunday. Other than that, though, I will continue to watch, you know, everything that I can, try to get as many mini-reviews in there for you and everything like that. Don't think outside of that that there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with before I close everything out here. This is the first weekend that I'll actually be back in Columbus without having a whole lot to do. And Jamie also, as I was saying, has to work, so that also gives me a little bit more time to compile things. So what I will say then in closing is that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe and do it and have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr., and I will say thank you so much for listening, and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening, and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending.